Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm communication specialist, Clay. In this episode, Philip Hollingsworth speaks with Chancellor Emeritus James Meeser. In their conversation, Meeser discusses his most recent book, The State of the University, 2000 through 2008. The book, available through UNC Press, is a collection of major addresses written and delivered during Meeser's tenure as the Chancellor of UNC Chapel Hill. Thanks for joining us and, and being willing to speak with us today. Glad to do James. it. Chancellor Emeritus James Meeser, uh, you recently published a book through UNC Press and also the IAH, our first uh, co-publication called The Stay of the University, 2000 to 2008, Major Addresses by UNC Chancellor James Meeser. To start out, I'd like to talk a little bit about your general impressions of the book, what you'd like to share about the book, and uh, a little bit about the process of getting it published. Yeah. As you said, this book puts together under, under a cover my major addresses that I delivered while I was chancellor, starting with my installation address in October of 2000, my, when I was first installed on the steps of South Building uh, in a great ceremony that is, is traditionally done on University Day. And after that, I, I, this is something I had actually done at Nebraska. And, I, I, and frankly, I didn't invent this idea. I, I copied other presidents who I saw successfully doing this. Uh, but every year, I put together a substantial address at the beginning of the academic year which I call the state of the university. And it was really my setting of the agenda for that academic year. That's really the whole purpose mm-hmm. of, of, of doing that. And so this book pulls together all, all eight of those addresses covering an eight-year period, plus a major address that I did at the University of Kansas, Merrill Institute for Advanced Studies in 2010, which was an invited address to talk about uh, achieving research excellence in a period of marginalized uh, uh, revenues, or I think that was something to, to that effect. And I was the keynote speaker for that conference. So I used that as a, as a kind of, and I've included that in this book because it's, it was, in fact, a kind of retrospective analysis of my eight years as chancellor at, U, at UNC. It's thanks to the Institute that this book happened. When I was acting director of the Institute for Arts and Humanities, uh, I had a small research fund, which was part of my my uh, stipend as being uh, for being interim director. And frankly, I didn't know what to do with it. And then it occurred to me, why not publish all, put all these works together? So th- I used my research grant actually as the funding kickoff to, to make this book possible. I want to concentrate now on uh, a couple of specific speeches of mm-hmm. this book. The first would be the chapter titled A Tempest in a Textbook, Academic Freedom and the Quran Controversy. And so this was written in 2002 related to your choice of the summer reading, which was not even the Quran, but a book on the Quran. That's right. Here you address the controversy, address the uh, intention of selecting this particular book. So to begin with, could you talk a little bit about that selection process? And then uh, I have some follow-up questions connected to kind of what we're seeing in terms of the academic climate today. We required our student, our entering students to read a book. Right. Uh, that was not a process that I, I started, by the way. That was, I inherited that, although we had a similar process in place 
at the University of Nebraska, and I think I may have started something like this when I was provost at South Carolina. Okay. So it's not a it's not a practice that's unique to Carolina at all. Mm-hmm. But it's important, and it's important because the uh, entering class has a hopefully has a common intellectual experience. And we said that we required this, although it's it was not for credit, and it was to be discussed in a in sessions for first-year students on the day before classes actually begin. It's part of their orientation when they arrive on campus. But it was, in our mind, a very important exercise to have a common uh, intellectual experience for these entering students around an an important idea. The the book was chosen by a faculty committee. I never had any role in the selection of the book. I thought it was appropriate that the faculty choose the book. In 2002, the faculty chose a book approaching the Quran by Michael Sells, a a faculty member at Haverford College, an, is, an Islamic scholar. It never occurred to me when the when I got when my phone rang in South Building in in the spring of of 2002 that this would be this was would ignite a great controversy. Mm-hmm. But it did. Yeah. Shortly after we announced that 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 this would be the book that our, our students were asked to read, we were sued. Well, first of all, we, Fox News and Bill O'Reilly got word of it, and, 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 and I'd, by the way, I'd never heard of Bill O'Reilly before, <laughs> this, before this erupted. But he got wind of the, of the, of the and, he, and he began this drumbeat that, that, that just grew like, a, like wildfire that we were indoctrinating students into Islam. Uh, and we were taking an anti-American pro-terrorist, and we were, we were indoctrinating students into Islam. Uh, we were sued by the Family Policy Network, the FPN. And so we had to go to court mm-hmm. to defend ourselves against this lawsuit, which was ultimately the courts threw out and, and we proceeded. But these, uh, this led to a, a, a presentation after the fact uh, to the National Press Club in Washington, which, and that's so these remarks, uh, Tempest in a Textbook, were my remarks to the National Press Club. What I appreciate about the speech is there's a there's an intellectual approach to the argument. There's also a bit of humor and and it it doesn't come off as like a reactionary attack, but a, a well-measured but also there there there's a bit of a lightness to the to the critique that was levied against you. Yeah, you know, um, for example, I said in the in the remarks, I said uh, there were no known conversions. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Carolina's religion remains basketball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a very memorable line. So yeah. I think, uh, but uh, so the thing that I appreciate about this is this happened in two thousand two. Sixteen years later, I still see these echoes of this of this argument. On, in terms of, of coursework, uh, readings on college campuses from other group outside groups critiquing the yes. university and about this kind of liberal agenda and indoctrination. Even today, how do, how do you respond to those accusations levied against universities of silencing certain voices yeah, or yeah. certain opinions? Um, let me first of all say that uh, people often ask, was I upset about all this controversy? Right. And, and the, the truth of the matter is I loved it. I, I thought it was a great opportunity to, to make this argument that this is the reason public universities were, in, were created. And that's why we, why we were created over 200 years ago as part of the American Revolution. 
universities exist for this kind of conversation. Uh, we exist to, to, to provoke thought. Uh, to, uh, we're, not, we're not in the business of indoctrination, but we're, we are in the business of asking people to, have, to consider new ideas and to explore new horizons. And, and so it, for me, it was a great opportunity to articulate the real purposes of a, of a great university. You mentioned earlier your address to the University of Kansas uh, during the Merrill Center Research Conference. It was in 2010, is mm-hmm. that correct? And this was post the economic crisis of 2008. We had a lot of issues in the university system with austerity measures. And one of the things that I really liked about this speech was you mentioned and you had this 10-point list of, of things to consider for leadership in, in, in higher education. One of those, you mentioned funding for arts and humanities, and you said that takes vision and courage. Can you speak a little bit more about the continued funding for arts and humanities, even in these like lean times? I think this is a really important issue, and still today, obviously, yeah. as we speak. Uh, the, the importance of the arts and humanities as a part of, of well, a well-balanced human being Mm-hmm. And a well-balanced institution. Uh, obviously, with all of this emphasis on on innovation and science and science and technology, STEM, uh, I have always argued that that it's STEAM, not STEM. That the arts, uh, and in fact, there, I think there's a better acronym uh, than science, technology, and engineering and mathematics. It has something to do with with the with Imagine, imagination and creativity. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, I, I, I think it, it is a requisite of leadership in an institution. And, and, and in fact, in my mind, one of the definitions of a great university is one that doesn't lose its balance, that doesn't lose its sense of equilibrium. No one will deny the importance of science and, and innovation and technology in the 21st century. It's, it's critical. But I think we're, incre- we're seeing increasingly that science needs the creative element to be mm-hmm. to be fully to be fully innovative there the arts and humanities are are really essential it may be an overstatement that it takes courage but it certainly takes vision yeah uh, to to keep that that sense of balance in mind and and to support those softer sides of the university along with the with the hard sciences why do you think it's so difficult for the arts and humanities to gain parity in the eyes of the general public? Because it seems like it's this constant... I mean, I've read stuff in the days of Andrew Carnegie criticizing the, the humanities and you know, in the, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Why do you think that's been this constant problem of, of having to prove the value of arts and prove the value of humanities? You're right. I don't think this is a new phenomenon at right. all. It's, it, it's, we've, we've, always, we've always had to justify ourselves to some extent. I think people who, are, who really have a strong sense of, of insight and, and wisdom and uh, understand that critical thinking is what most corporations really want more than anything else. It's, uh, uh, I've heard many CEOs say, I want people who can think for themselves and who can think. I, I, we can teach them the, what, what they need to know to make widgets, right. but we need people who can think for themselves. And we know that, that the rate of change is now so rapid, we can't... Uh, I used to say to students, and this was now years ago when I was actively talking to students, the job of a trade school 
is to train you for your first job. Our task as a university is to, is to help give you the tools for your last job, mm-hmm. knowing that you're, that you're going to have somewhere between 7 and 15 different careers over a normal lifespan. And, 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 and some of the careers you're, go- you're going to have don't even exist yet. Right. We have to, we, what, we're, what we're about is giving you the tool, tools to be lifelong learners and to, and to think for yourselves. Well, Chancellor Mieser, thank you very much for your time and your uh, responses to my thank questions. You. Thank you. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.